Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. My name is Kate, and this week we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Joan Maloof. Um, she has a new book that has come out this year, um, 2023, Nature's Temples, A Natural History of Old Growth Forests, a revised and expanded edition of um, a great text. And uh, she also does a lot of work with activism with old growth forests. So I'm really excited for her conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. No problem. I'm so excited that you're here joining us. Um, to begin with, could you explain to our audience a little bit about your work um, with plants? What is the goal of the work? Um, what do you do and what do the plants do? Ah, well, um, I was born with an affinity for plants. And so in some roles, I consider myself a botanist and I taught university for a while, a PhD trained scientist. But I also saw the, um, the habitats for the plants being destroyed, particularly the largest plants, the trees that are such important structure for habitat for so many other organisms. And so I retired early from my university teaching to start an organization called the Old Growth Forest Network. And what we do is make sure that no more of our oldest forests are cut down. And to also speak out for our second growth forests that are in recovery and getting older and try to preserve them. And all of this preservation is not only for the trees themselves and the organisms that live within the trees in the forest, and of course the atmosphere, but also for humans. So we have places where we can go and relate to the forest ecosystem that we know is unthreatened because our network is a network of forests that are firmly protected from logging. So we direct people to these places where there's an older forest that is purely protected so that they can really feel that ecosystem and experience what it's like to be in that sort of ecosystem. That's the that's the short answer. That's wonderful. And is the network that you've created and work with primarily in the United States or an international? Yes, it's the U.S. I really love that you bring up the different organisms because in the text, it was really fascinating to kind of have each grouping of different organisms spotlighted. Um, and it's just such a wonderful discussion of this mixture of like good science <laughs> and good kind of like uh, digestible kind of public, you know, public facing academic work. Yeah. And the um, and the emotion, too, I try to include in there. It was funny. Last night I was Googling if there were any reviews of the book yet. I was just kind of curious and I found one review where um, the reviewer said, well, who really cares about snails? Because I have a chapter about snails in the old growth forest compared to the younger managed forest. And I thought that was so interesting because of course, 
you know, we should be caring about the snails and the snails are living organisms in their own right. So it just shows that um, we have a long way to go. So people might care about mosses and they might care about the wildflowers and they might care about the fungi, but we also want them to care about the snails and the salamanders and even the microscopic organisms in a forest. For our listeners, could you explain a few basic distinctions between young forest, old growth forest, managed lands, and different types of terms and concepts that you work with in your organization, but also have throughout the book? Well, I think it's easiest to start with a big picture, and that is, you know, look at the earth as a whole. And the earth didn't always have forests. It didn't always have humans. You know, forests evolved about a few hundred million years ago. And they were just the plants that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until they got tall enough that we called them forests. And a lot of those early tree species have since become extinct and other tree species have evolved. Meanwhile, um, animals were evolving, primates evolved. The humans came onto the scene very late in that. You know, We've only been around even close to something we could call humans, um, that began like 4 million years ago. So think about the forests hundreds of millions of years ago and the humans just a few hundred million years ago. But the earth is not a static place. You know, that's just proof of it. It's very changeable. So during that time, things have happened to the forest. You know, there've been fires, there've been windstorms, there've been tornadoes, there've been insects. So these forests um, grow up and then things happen, they fall down and then they begin to recover and grow again. Well, when we think about an old growth forest, it's just a place on the planet where the forest has been allowed to do its own thing or really the, the land has been able to do its own thing uninterrupted by humans largely. And so in many places, when we leave a piece of ground alone, it will become a forest. Now, is that forest going to stay intact for 500 years before it has one of these events that destroy it or 5,000 years before it has an event that destroys it? There's a lot of variability there, but we call an old growth forest one of these places where the land and the forest that grew upon it is just doing its own thing. Now, um, some people say that a forest like that that goes down in a tornado is still old growth, even if the trees are very young and coming back and other people will say, oh, it's not old growth. So there's a lot of arguing there about semantics, but it all began to change when humans started looking at trees as a commodity, when we started using the wood fiber for uh, building sailing ships and building houses and building railroads and building houses and and began to buy and sell this wood fiber. Since then, the trees have been, often been thought of like as a crop. And many places were keeping the forest 
a lot younger than it would be if we left it alone. So those are the younger managed forest, or we could call them industrial forest land. But the land still has the capacity to recover in many places. And that old growth label, how much of that is left in the US? Well, we've estimated only 1% in the East and 5% in the West. So we have, we humans have done a lot to change the forested landscape. So the old growth forest network, one thing we're saying is, well, like with that small percentage, not only do we need to make sure that we don't lose any more of that because of all the organisms that live there and how special these places are, but we believe we should let some of the forests that have been cut once recover. So these second growth forests can be thought of as future old growth forests. And so we're speaking out to protect them too, so that there'll be a larger percentage of old forests on the landscape in the future. And that's our gift to the generations to come because the time scale of a forest is so much longer than our human lifetime. So we have to do this not only for our lifetimes, but make sure that there are lifetimes after us, ours that will also believe in the same mission and do the same thing to hand this off to the next generation. Definitely. I think it's something, time is something that comes up perennially in um, environmental circles, but especially right now in like critical plant studies, a lot of artists and thinkers are working with this, like, what is plant time? You know, and when we think mm -hmm. about life, spans of different type of organisms, especially plants, you know, how much variation there is in that. Something that comes up again and again in your book is representation for organisms that can't speak for themselves. And as someone who comes kind of from feminist philosophy and also environmental studies, the idea of speaking for others who aren't able to speak um, is really powerful and also a really fascinating concept. And so I was wondering, um, what does representation and speaking for organisms that cannot mean to you? Um, what are some of these organisms? And then how do you speak for them? And how do you ascertain what their interests are? Thank you for that question, Kate. And I think uh, speaking for the trees and the future generations, like we just talked about, that provides a certain humility. So when I stand up in front of a group and say, this forest should not be cut, I can do that with the confidence that it's not just my ego or what I want, or I wanna see the forest standing. I know that I'm also representing um, what I believe those trees want and what the future generations would want too. So that's very helpful. So as far as speaking for the trees and the other organisms, so often I've been 
in meeting rooms where somebody thinks the forest should be cut and has a plan for cutting for the health of the forest. I'm doing the air quotes there. <laughs> um, and they define the health of the forest as maybe more oak trees than beech trees, for example. And I'm saying, you know, other people and myself were saying, no, we need to keep the forest standing there. It's cleaning the air, it's cleaning the water. It's so beautiful, the next generations. But the voice that's not there in that room are the actual living beings, the plants and animals that are gonna be most affected by that. So I like to remember that and to try as much as I can to give them a voice. So how this plays out um, when I get to the podium in one of these meetings, it won't just be about humans or me or the Old Growth Forest Network. I usually start by reciting a litany of tree species that are in that particular forest, just to remind people that we're talking about sweet gum and black gum and beech and maple and hickory and white oak and pin oak and black oak and magnolia and holly. You know, these are lives that we're talking about, whether they should be saved or not. And so, I think they deserve a place at the table, even they, though they cannot speak human. Definitely. And related to that, I love that in the book you talk about what I think is very practical and possibly frustrating experience of working with different institutions and organizations, whether they be governmental um, or not um and the different procedures that you have to go through and whether or not people show up <laughs> to the committees that they've signed up for um which i hadn't really thought of before but was pretty surprising to me like some of your discussions around who were the actual representative representatives that ended up going to like every meeting um of a given board um or focus group. And so I was wondering if, given your experiences with some of that, um, if you could share a story or two of what that experience is like, like on the ground, and then also share with our audience what some of the things that if you could change those processes to make it so that, you know, there was more representation maybe of different interests in different, you know, um, powers or representatives, like what would that look like? Wow, that's a complex question. Um, I think maybe what comes to mind as a story is, um, first of all, you need to get yourself a place at the table. You know, if you really want to make a difference, you can't be shy. <laughs> you can't want to not make waves. You have to not be afraid to make waves. Um, so 
I kept being frustrated by the state forests. I'm in Maryland here, Maryland State Forest. We have no national forests. We have no wilderness here. Really, our state forests are our largest public forests. And I was so frustrated how they were managed as a woody fiber resource. They And instead of just being frustrated or complaining, I decided that I would volunteer to be on the committee. I'd go to some meetings that led to volunteering to be on the committee as the ecologist representative. And I would go to these meetings. They were the Citizens Advisory Committee. And there were supposed to be a dozen people on this advisory committee. And often it was just myself and the representative of the timber industry. So if I hadn't been there, it would just be the timber industry. And it was um, frustrating that the state forest managers were always planning these cuts in forests that were native and older and diverse. And we were supposed to be under um, FSC, Forest Stewardship Committee. What is that, FSC? FSC certified. And we'd have auditors that would come once a year to look at how they were doing. Well, I was one of the only people on the committee, I think I was the only person on the committee who ever actually went out to see the forest that they planned to cut. And it was hard to find these and it took some time. And of course you get the ticks and chiggers and there's no trail, so you're lost. But I would go out there and in certain forests, I would say, no, this forest should not be cut. It's beautiful, old, diverse. And so one year when the the audit committee came, I asked that we could go look at that forest together. So there we were in the forest and I got to say my part about how I didn't think that forest should be cut. And it eventually got taken off the cutting list. So it's like, well, that took 10 minutes to say we should get that on the list and to say my part there, but it took 10 years of being on the committee and knowing people and, and getting out there and looking at the forest to save that. So that's a long-winded answer of one example of how we have this kind of machine that's in place. We have foresters that are hired by the state and what they've learned to do is manage the forest for timber and then People like me can just be little cogs in the wheels. <laughs> we can slow it down and at times we can change it. So recently, every year I write a letter regarding the current management plans happening and let other people in my state know and that this is the time to make comments. And the forest manager said, well, if we don't, cut the forest, it's just going to die and create huge fires and everybody's <laughs> homes will be damaged. Just out and out exaggerations. And this is in Maryland where we don't have that type of forest fire. So what I do then is just try to speak the truth to that, you know, just let people know what really the chances of the 
chances of that are that actually there's a lower rate of tree death in the older forests than in the younger forests. And we don't have natural forest fire conflagrations here unless they're caused by humans. So just being involved and not being afraid to speak the truth, I think that's the most important thing. One thing that the network is really interested in is thinking about having respect for plants and what that might look like or what that might entail. Um, and I was wondering throughout your work, how do you think respect shows up and how is it embodied in your work? Mm -hmm. That's a, a complex question because it's like saying, how do you show respect for humans? You know, one way is by giving them space, whether it's privacy or giving them the space they need to express themselves. Like even in this conversation to go back and forth, I allow you space, you allow me space. And it's kind of the same way for the plants. Um, I believe there should be space for the wild plants to just be what they are. And we shouldn't be trying to manage every little thing there. We should let them try to find their own spaces. I have my own also personal relationship with, with plants. For instance, um, you know, I have house plants and I'll give them a certain space. You know, I have a house plant right now that has scale insects on it. And instead of saying, no, oh, no, you know, it's got scale. I'm going to toss it in the trash can there. No big deal. It's like, to me, that plant has a life. So instead, what I've been doing is kind of rubbing the scale off with my hands whenever I have a chance. I know other people would do things. They'd say, oh, spray with this, spray with that. But I've found actually handling the plant and rubbing the scale off has given me a whole different relationship to that plant. I love it. I couldn't imagine getting rid of it now. And even in my very small vegetable garden, um, I do a lot of um, experimentation, I'll say. So right now I have arugula that has gone to seed and I'm instead of taking those plants out when it wasn't just the leaves that I could eat anymore, I let them flower, I let them be food to pollinators, then I let them go to seed and I will let those seeds fall all around my garden, maybe move them in a little bit, and maybe I'll get new arugula seeds from that, plants from that, that I can eat. And I've been doing that for a few years, and I also do that with... Um, cilantro, coriander, and I have that that's been overwintering for maybe five years now with the new seedlings coming up. And sometimes I'm places and I'll collect little seeds, you know, and just will sprinkle them. So if you saw my garden, you'd see like, oh, kind of crazy there. Nothing's in rows. I have two little tiny snapdragon things that popped up from last year's snapdragon plants. But to me, that's kind of respecting the plants and what they want to do there and just getting to know them better. 
Definitely, definitely. And I'm sure you're not alone in having a kind of not wild garden, but, you know, kind of like, you know, it develops, it's this mixture of human intervention and kind of letting it be and develop as it goes, you know. Um, yeah. So there was one section of your text, I mean, I liked the entire text, <laughs> but there was this one quote that really stuck out to me, especially considering particular plants and the relationships that we have with them. Um, and so in a section of the text discussing age and size of trees, you describe an experience you had with a black gum tree in Maryland. You write, quote, but I knew it was old, very old, perhaps 400 years old, but I had no desire to core a tree like that to find out for certain. She, not an it anymore, was in a protected forest owned by the Nature Conservancy, and I did not want to cause any trauma that might tip her over the edge to decline. Would you suggest piercing your hundred-year-old grandmother's navel? So that's on page 25 of the text. Um, and could you briefly describe what coring is for trees? Um, so like what coring a tree is, and then explain or describe the shift that the tree underwent from an it to a she and what brings that change about for you. So coring is a process of taking like a hand drill about the diameter of a drinking straw and turning that drill into the tree until it reaches the very center of the tree. And then you pull this wooden core out and you can see the tree rings on that core. And by counting the tree rings, often under a microscope, you can age the tree. At, and then you add on maybe the years that it took for the tree to get to that height that you cored it. So that's the only way we know for sure right now how to age a tree. And it's useful, but it also feels very invasive to me. It feels damaging, even though the tree might not die from that. It's certainly, um, yeah, it's like, you know, poking the needle deep into your Thing, taking out a plug of skin. So that's how I look at it. And how the tree went from becoming an it to a she. Often when we walk into a forest, there's all these trees, right? And they're green. And, and one way we start to build a relationship with them is by being able to identify the species. I find that very helpful. I mean, that's the first step to going from a mass of green to like, oh, there's a sweet gum, there's a maple, there's a redwood. You know, these wouldn't all be in the same place, but for example, to name these trees, cottonwood. And by at least giving them species names, you're familiar with what color they turn in the fall, what kind of seeds they produce, what other habitat are they likely to be found in, what they support. But then beyond that, just like with humans, you know, we can say, oh, 
those are some Japanese people, or those are some people from Kenya, or those are, you know, this type of person. Then beyond that, we know them as individuals. And if you're just looking at a mass of humans, it can be difficult to know them all as individuals. Like if I go to a elementary school choir, it's like, oh, look at all the children. But I'm looking for a particular child that means something to me, and I call them by a name. So it's the same way with plants. We can start to narrow them down by knowing their species, but then even beyond that, they can become individuals to us. And that black gum tree, by really taking the time to appreciate her and look up in her canopy and realize how long she'd been alive, she became an individual to me that I did not want to harm. And it's the same way with even some of the much younger plants. You know, I have a little sycamore tree in my yard that I planted and um, it's only about 15 or 20 feet tall, but it's definitely an individual. <laughs> I don't know if it's a she or a he or a they, but <laughs> it's an individual. Um, do you have any else that you'd like to share with the network, um, any current or ongoing projects that you'd like them to look into, besides, of course, picking up a copy of Nature's Temples, A Natural History of Old Growth Forests, which is truly fascinating. Thank you, Kate. I really wrote that book for all the people out there that are trying to save forests. Like if a forest manager says, this is gonna be good for the health of the forest, it kind of, they don't know how to respond to that. So this book will give people the tools to respond to comments like that. And they'll be able to show proof of how by letting the forest remain unmanaged and become older, it will have more moss species, more fungal species, more salamander species, more snail species. It will store more carbon. It will clean the air, clean the water. All the facts that they need are in there. So I wrote that for people that needed those facts all together. Um, there are so many things that can be done every day. I'm sure things on the listeners' local levels, whether it's from trying to get a tree ordinance in place to speaking out for that next forest that's um, in controversy in their town, that's on the brink of being cut for development. Also right now on the federal level, we are at a very unique point in time to make a difference. And for the first time ever, our a president of the country has said that he wanted to take a close look at the federal lands, so this is the Forest Service lands, that, including the parks and the BLM lands, and to define what is an old growth forest, to identify where they are on these federal lands, and then to look at how and if they should be protected. 
if people are interested in more action items, is there a place that they can go to your organization's website to sign up for them? Or is it best to look at the website for kind of updated um, action items? Our primary mission is creating this network of protected forests across the country that anyone can visit. And so we're always trying to grow that network by speaking out for protections for particular forests, things people have already worked on in their communities. So there are um, things happening that we have highlighted on a page called Threatened Forests on our website. So if people really want to get involved, they can go to those threatened forests and be involved. But there's also, like I said, probably threatened forests in your very community that you could be involved in. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Maloof. This has been a really wonderful conversation. And I look forward to following more of your work um, with the Old Growth Forest Network. Um, and I hope you can come back and join us again sometime in the future on the podcast um, as more movement is made around the U.S., hopefully. Um, <laughs> the federal move to recognize old growth force will go through and we can have a celebration <laughs> exactly podcast episode. Right. Exactly right. It'll be great to come back and be able to do that. And um, celebration is a big part of what we need to do to keep the enthusiasm alive and to make it fun to save forests. Thank you so much. If you would like to follow um, Dr. Joan Malouf's organization, um, there'll be a link provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. If you're interested in looking into our organization, you can follow, you can find us at networkingwithplants.org or you can email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next week, be well and go check out your local forests. <laughs>